0: Lopate at at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. One of the ironies of life is that the molecules that allow us to exist can also sabotage our minds, and diseases can form in their wake. Sarah Manning-Peskin, a cognitive neurologist and assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania, examines the workings of our brains, the most mysterious and complex organ in our bodies, in her new book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. It's published by W.W. Norton and Company and brings Dr. Peskin to our show now.
1: Welcome. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Aren't Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body disease, frontotemporal dementia, Picks disease, pellagra, and other types of dementia each associated with particular molecular changes, can, can we see them under a microscope?
1: Yes, it's a, it's a great question. So, yeah, just thinking of the first one of Alzheimer's disease, so many of us have heard of the disease, and we know people who have it, but people don't really know what, what really does that mean? What does that diagnosis mean? And if we go back to, you know, the original Dr. Alzheimer was this uh, neuropsychiatrist in the early 1900s in Germany, and he meets this woman named Deter, who is a 51-year-old woman who's lost her memory. And he examines her, he does some tests on her. He waits several years and uh, eventually is able to look at her brain under a microscope after she passes away. And he sees these two changes. One is called plaques and they look like spray painted spots and the other is called tangles and they look like almost like spaghetti inside of neurons. And we now know that the plaques are made of a protein called amyloid. And that spaghetti tangle like stuff is made of a protein called tau. So when we say someone has Alzheimer's disease, it's actually a that's a molecular diagnosis. It means we think they have amyloid and tau in their in their brains. So all all these things have these molecular connections under a a microscope.
0: Well, I'm sure all of our listeners, because we have very intelligent listeners, know what a molecule is. But why don't we define it anyway?
1: Yeah, so it's it's uh, it, it, if you start off sort of with an atom, so we've all heard of atoms like carbon, nitrogen, hmm. oxygen. If you take two atoms and you stick them together, any group of two or more atoms stuck together is a molecule. An easy way to think about it is if you think of an atom as a Lego block, anything that's constructed of more than one Lego block turns out to be a molecule.
0: And some can be a, more, a, a, a number of different atoms?
1: Yeah, some so are there are giant molecules. Exactly. So there are giant molecules like DNA, and then there are really tiny molecules like water. The reason why we call water H2O is because it's made of two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom.
0: Now, you define the molecular villains into four categories, mutants, rebels, invaders, and evaders. Hasn't molecular research solved several mysteries on why seemingly healthy people appear to suddenly develop serious mental conditions?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the the diseases that I talk about in the book, you're exactly right. We actually have incredibly, we've been incredibly successful in finding cures. So one of the stories I tell in the book is about a a young woman who had really come up in sort of adverse circumstances, excelled academically, done extraordinarily well, went off to a wonderful school, came home after graduation and had planned to apply to to, to, uh, MFA programs in writing. And she wakes up one day and she starts repeating the same question over and over again. And uh, she starts stumbling. She gets a fever and her mom brings her to the emergency room and she becomes essentially acutely psychotic. She starts throwing people around the emergency room. They have to send in uh, security guards to, to restrain her. She's convinced uh, she's being
0: attacked by zombies.
1: Exactly. So it turned out that in the weeks before she got sick, she'd been watching the walking dead. Mm. And uh, when she became psychotic, she actually started to think that people around her were characters in the walking dead. She would mistake her mom for characters and the nurses for characters and the doctors for characters. And uh, it turned out that her disease was caused by a single molecule. It was a, a problem in her immune system, where uh, her immune system was actually, instead of uh, sort of preventing her or protecting her from invaders, uh, it was actually building these molecules that attacked uh, an important part of her brain. And uh, doctors were able to diagnose it and actually cure it. And she's now, you know, back in the world, living healthily and, uh, and doing well.
0: So was the, the molecule that was uh, causing her problems a mutant?
1: Exactly. So I put that in the category, um, actually, of, of rebels. Because I want so, to
0: go through these categories: mutants.
1: Yeah. So that so that one is actually from the rebels group, yeah, oh, which I'll were, were, were groups of rebel. proteins. Okay. Yeah, um, but um, so I I divided as you said in mutants, rebels, invaders, and evaders. And the the mutant group were uh, were DNA mutations. So these were diseases where people had mutations in their DNA that caused them to essentially have a a total overhaul of their personality, uh, and um, one of the examples is uh, is about a, a guy who was this very successful entrepreneur, and uh, he'd run this uh, wine company. He'd built it. Uh, he'd built it along with his brother, and it had become, you know, a, a sort of Goliath in, in online wine retailers. And he brought his son into the business, and a few months after his son came on board, the this guy who the book uh, I called Danny Goodman, uh, he starts acting a little strange and he you know doesn't want to hug his son anymore. He doesn't seem to be interested in answering the phone, so the ring will just sort of hang in the air. And uh, he starts watching pornography on his computer at work. And he doesn't really seem to get that that's all sort of inappropriate or atypical or not socially sort of acceptable. He starts buying tons of DVDs so that his mailbox is sort of stuffed with multiple copies of the same DVD. He starts eating tons of pizza. So he really becomes essentially sort of a different personality, a different person.
0: And, and what, and what nobody, would that condition be called? That's not Huntington disease or frontotemporal dementia. So it, it
1: turns out, so he actually turned out to have frontotemporal dementia, oh. um, and, um, and it was caused actually by a mutation in his DNA. And so uh, it, it really brought up this idea that I wanted to, you know, highlight in the book, which is that neurologic diseases are so unusual in the sense that they can change people's identities. So... And you can have heart disease or liver disease or kidney disease, and it can cause havoc in your life, but it doesn't get to the essence of your own identity of who you are. Where are these neurologic diseases, you know, we can have people who come in and they say, You know, I've gone to couples therapy. My partner is just it's not the person I married. And it's not that, you know, it's the natural drifting away of people. It's that the person actually has had this molecular sort of catastrophe and they've become a different person.
0: And you relate a case involving a young woman you call Amelia, who's in a clinic waiting room about to find out if she'll develop Huntington's disease because her mother had died from it. Is there a Huntington's gene
1: Yeah, so there is, there is a a gene uh, and there are, there's a a particular type of change in the gene. uh, And when you have that change, you people will develop Huntington's disease. And that that research actually was done uh, by a woman or sort of pioneered by this woman uh, named Nancy Wexler. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a, a brilliant is a brilliant scientist who uh, came home one day and uh, her, her dad sat her and her sister down and said, you know, your mom has Huntington's disease. And she essentially ended up overhauling her career and uh, recruiting scientists and uh, sort of fostering the, the scientific work that went on to discover the gene that causes Huntington's disease.
0: You write that Amelia's mother... Uh, died of the condition. Uh, but before she did, she'd become irrational, demented, and exhausted from unintentional movements that made her limbs look like they were infused with a fluctuating electric current. So Amelia became an expert in, uh, in ways of, of staving it off. How, how did she wind up succumbing to it as well? Was she aware of the fact that she was slipping into it as well?
1: So actually, Amelia is actually still, she doesn't have symptoms of Huntington's disease. So she actually, she carries the genetic change. So she, you know, if she lives long enough, we think she'll develop the disease, but she doesn't have the disease right now. She just has the genetic mutation that sort of puts her at at, uh, sort of high risk or high likelihood of eventually developing it. Um, So it's sort of a curious thing where you have people who are walking around and they're completely normal, but they're carrying in their DNA this condition or this abnormality that's eventually going to sort of uh, dominate their life at some point.
0: And you mentioned that children often have to undergo genetic tests after a parent succumbs to a hereditary disease.
1: So people can choose to do that. And actually, usually, unless you're symptomatic, yeah, you have to be at least 18 to, to do the testing. Um, and it's an interesting choice that people make. And some people choose, you know, to, to find out and they want to know, even though, you know, there's no cure, but they say, you know, I want to know because it helps with planning, it helps with enrolling in research. Um, and some people say, you know, I, I know my parent had the disease, I have a 50% chance of having the disease, but I don't, I don't want to know. And there are people who make both decisions.
0: So let's talk about the rebels, uh, the second category. Uh, they're infectious proteins that behave badly, uh, mostly prions?
1: Yeah. So uh, one of the chapters I wrote about is about the story of of Kuru. And uh, Kuru was this disease in Papua New Guinea Mm. that uh, was discovered. Exactly. So that turned up to be the the answer. And uh, so but people didn't know that initially. So these scientists started seeing a disease called Kuru or that was named Kuru uh, that was breaking out among this tribe named the Four in Papua New Guinea and nobody could figure out what was causing it, but it seemed to sort of epidemiologically behave like a infectious disease. Uh, but when people looked under a microscope at brains of people who had died of the disease there was no you know there was no bacteria there was no virus there was no fungus there was no parasite they couldn't figure out what was causing the infection and uh, the disease it, it was a horrible disease it caused uh, usually it mostly affected women and children it caused them to lose their balance uh, it caused them to lose their words they would sort of laugh uncontrollably and they would die within a year of of developing symptoms um, and it, it so ravaged the tribe that uh, there actually weren't enough women available to marry. They had all these single men, whereas normally uh, they would have, you know, an an overabundance of women because men would have died in in warfare. Um, And so eventually you're exactly right. So eventually they figure out uh, that the disease is caused not by something as big as a a virus or a bacteria, but by a a protein, which is much, much, much smaller. Um, And it's a protein that sort of changes shape. And it adopts a shape that's toxic. And when you have a few proteins that adopt that toxic shape, it actually causes all these other proteins in the brain to also adopt that same shape. So they're sort of recruiting followers.
0: So and it the, turned
1: out that yeah. it was co- – oh, go ahead.
0: No, no, finish your thought.
1: Yeah, but it, so it turned out the disease was propagated through cannibalism. Mm. And uh, the four tribe had this tradition where um, when someone died, they would distribute the brain to women at the funeral. And then the women would take the leftovers home to their children, and it was actually in that brain. That's how the infection was transmitted from one person to the next.
0: Well, although Kuru is now extinct, didn't it give us insight into how certain proteins can infect people and lead to neurodegenerative disorders like mad cow disease?
1: Yeah, so even though the disease itself, Kuru, was so, you know, it was really relegated to this particular tribe, it actually sort of opened the box on these other diseases that we know about much more commonly, things like, like mad cow disease, uh, there's something called Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease that um, uh, pops up every once in a while that we see on our, our clinical wards in, in neurology and that's related some, to the same
0: thing. And Don't some researchers believe that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases could also be related to prions?
1: Exactly. So there's, a, there's a guy named Stanley Prusiner, who's a Nobel Prize winner yeah, at uh, UCSF, and he's really pioneered. He, he's the one who actually sort of discovered prions, and he's arguing that, uh, that Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease are also actually prion diseases.
0: But we don't know for sure yet.
1: There's debate in the field, yeah, but so uh, it's certainly a, an idea that's talked about often, but we don't really know.
0: My guest is Sarah Manning-Peskin. Uh, her book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain, published by Norton. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, the, uh, the third group we're going to deal with is called, you call invaders. They're smaller molecules that are generally toxins and drugs made outside our body, but that cause problems in, uh, and create destruction within them.
1: Yeah, so you have so DNA and proteins are pretty big molecules mm-hmm. and, and so the invaders were these small molecules yeah, so they' are they're you know much smaller these are things sort of like a lot of the drugs that we take or a lot of the you know the, the medications that we fill at our pharmacy and the story that I tell in the book is about Abraham Lincoln Mercury. there's a lot of Exactly. So there's a lot of secondhand accounts that suggest that Abraham Lincoln took a medication called blue mass that was mostly mercury. And uh, we we don't know, uh, but there are some people who have uh, sort of speculated that Lincoln might actually have suffered effects of mercury toxicity because of taking this medication. And there's a, a secondhand account saying that Lincoln at one point says, you know, I stopped taking blue mass soon after I became president because I realized it made me cross. And well, we know that mercury can make people have really volatile moods. Well, at um, the time, so,
0: didn't doctors believe that mercury purged the body of toxins by inducing a lot of diarrhea? So uh, he was taking it because he had that. He had problems along those lines?
1: so yeah so there's some debate so some people think that he took it for you know for constipation and other people think he took it for depression mm-hmm. and uh, it, at the time it's been prescribed for essentially an enormous amount of conditions people have prescribed lumas for uh, for syphilis uh, they actually prescribed it and uh, lewis and clark when they went on their expedition uh, they took mercury containing medications and they you know gave it to people on the expedition expedition for tons of different indications uh, but and uh, but there's uh it was just used very, very frequently until not not too long ago. Uh, but, it, uh, but for Lincoln himself, mm-hmm. there's a thought that either he took it for constipation or potentially for depression.
0: And it, mercury poisoning goes back a long time. Don't historians believe that the first Qin dynasty emperor died at age 49 in 210 BCE? When he died of probable mercury toxicity, they believed in those days that— uh, it was an antidote to mortality.
1: Exactly, and it turns out it's probably the opposite. <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but actually, his his actual uh, sort of um, his actual body, we haven't been able to really uh, recover it because the tomb is so encased in mercury that it's too dangerous to go near.
0: So, what are some of the other invaders? Uh, they uh, usually caused by illicit drugs and, and pharmaceuticals.
1: Yeah. So the list is sort of endless. Uh, you know, you could think about if you think about your own list of medications, uh, many of them can have cognitive side effects or can change people's personalities. And it's often in subtle ways. And we don't really, you know, we don't think too much about it mm. and we just sort of go on in our lives and we have all these interactions and we fall in love and we you know fall out of love and we, you know, we have all these, you know, friendships and relationships and we don't really think about the fact that they're so affected by the things that we take into our bodies.
0: I'm a, uh, uh, I'm always uh a bit shocked when I see all the side effects that uh, they list on the the commercials on television for pharmaceuticals you know they're telling you that this thing is going to change your life in a positive way and then they say it could cause and then <laughs> one of the things that it could cause is is death
1: exactly. <laughs> Right. You can say, why would you ever take any medication? Um, you know, it is a it is a problem. You know, how do you how do you talk to patients about medications when the side effect list is so extraordinarily long? What I often tell patients is, you know, here's the top four or five side effects. But anything can essentially cause any, any you know, any drug can sort of cause any side effects. So if you notice any change, let me know. Um, and that's sort of the balance I try to strike. I don't know if that's the right one.
0: But uh... We also have evaders, and you say that they are essential components, like vitamins. Still, in in that case, it's when we don't have them, when we have a vitamin deficiency that we have a problem.
1: Exactly. So for a long time, people didn't realize that what we eat is actually just as important as what we don't eat. And it actually came to light with a really with the study of, of vitamins uh, where people realized that there were these small molecules that are important and that are necessary for our diets. And when we don't have them, we actually suffer significant diseases. Uh, so one of the stories I tell in the book is about a condition called pellagra. Which uh, it's a pretty gruesome condition where uh, it causes uh, rash and it causes diarrhea and it causes people to have a a dementing illness. And actually, there was a terrible outbreak of it in the southeastern U.S. in the early 1900s, where just you know tens of thousands of people, more than you know, eventually hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people end up getting this disease, and no one can really figure out what's causing it. And with a, a sort of a, a graphic story that I tell in the book, but eventually the scientist figures out that it's actually caused by a deficiency in niacin or vitamin B3. And most of these vitamins, we now, we don't really have to think twice about getting them because they're added to flour and cereals and, and the food that we buy. So as long as you have a relatively varied diet, you're, you're essentially getting the vitamins that you need, but it didn't used to be that way.
0: You write of a patient you call Lisa who began creating false memories but all the scans and other diagnostic tests couldn't find their source.
1: Yeah, so she had this uh, this uh, phenomenon that's kind of a wild phenomenon in neurology called confabulation. And it's when people essentially we don't really know if this is really what's going on, but there's this idea that they sort of fill in gaps in their memory. So it's often in people who have a history of heavy alcohol use, although it could be caused by other things too. But with heavy alcohol use, they actually stop absorbing and stop taking in enough of a vitamin B1 or a thiamine. And it causes them to have this profound memory change where they have difficulty creating new memories. And they end up uh, sort of Filling in gaps in their memory so that when you ask them, uh, you know, if you ask them something where they don't quite remember, they'll create actually a new memory Uh, and they think that it's real. So it's not that it's a sort of conscious lying. We talk about this as sort of honest, uh, honest lying or an honest liar. Yeah, I and mean, it's this sort of wild phenomenon. Uh, the guy who discovered it or who sort of first described it talks about talking to a patient and saying, you know, what did you do yesterday? And the patient tells the doctor about going off on this incredible journey and this adventure off, you know, miles and miles away. When in reality, the doctor knows the guy's been sitting in his hospital bed for the past weeks, uh, for the past several weeks. Yeah. but uh, But he's just confabulating.
0: So we associate this usually with alcoholism
1: oftentimes you can also see that same phenomenon actually in certain types of strokes Um, and there are a few other causes also yeah but classically the first cases were described in people who uh, who had alcohol abuse
0: now uh, but you mentioned vitamin b1 thiamine Um, what does it do for us
1: so thiamine is actually um, one of the sort of most, most important vitamins It's actually used throughout the body uh, in it, uh, it all sorts of systems and, uh, and it gets transformed into other molecules and helps with, uh, with metabolism and allowing us to actually extract energy from the, the food that we eat. Um, so it has a, a really sort of wide variety of, of uses, and it has it has particular uses um, in relation to acetylcholine, um, which is actually a neurotransmitter that's decreased in people with Alzheimer's disease. And that's why some of the features of thymine deficiency overlap with Alzheimer's disease.
0: You say it protects us from dangerous forms of oxygen that would otherwise decimate our brain cells. I didn't know oxygen could ever be dangerous,
1: Right. We think of it as, you know, Mm -hmm. it's critical for us to have oxygen to breathe. And that's true. There's something called reactive oxygen species, which is it's sort of a a variance that uh, that actually is quite toxic, toxic. And so when you think about, you know, when you eat foods with lots of antioxidants, the reason why we think those are good is because they're actually fighting these reactive oxygen species.
0: So when I take my vitamin B complex pill in the morning, I'm protecting myself against all of this.
1: So the thought is that we're giving you sort of a boost. Um, whether or not you actually need that vitamin is, is hard to tell. And, you know, I think the data is the data is is mixed. Uh, but, but um, you know, certainly for us in clinic, uh, when people we, we often check people who have cognitive difficulty, we check them for a vitamin B12. And then if it's low, we, we have them replace it and they can see a benefit.
0: You relate the story of one of your patients in 2016, a recent college graduate and aspiring fiction writer. What happened to her?
1: So uh, that was a story uh, of a woman who uh, she graduated college, uh, she came home and uh, she started uh, actually repeating herself in conversation. And uh, she was living with her mom, and her mom notices she has a fever, she's stumbling, and her mom says, "You know, why don't we go to the emergency room?" And they get to the emergency room, and she turns to her mom and says, "You know, do you think there could be a, a virus in my head?" Uh, but she gets sort of a little bit confused. The doctor comes in, he's asking her, "You know, where do you live? Can you count backwards to a And she suddenly becomes essentially psychotic Um, and she starts thinking that she's living in the in the walking dead and she'd actually been watching the walking dead she'd been binge watching it in the weeks before you you mentioned Um, her
0: earlier but uh, exactly we didn't go into detail because uh, hadn't a tumor growing on her right ovary stimulated her immune system to produce millions of antibodies which uh, attacked crucial receptors in her brain
1: Exactly. So, so right. So, this, so she actually turned out to have a condition um, where she actually had a tumor growing in her ovary, and it was a particularly unique type of tumor that actually uh, it displayed these molecules called receptors that are also in the brain. So her body said, oh, my gosh, there's this tumor. We have to fight the tumor. It starts making antibodies or immune molecules that are going to attack the, this, the molecules in the tumor. So it's going to attack these receptors, but unfortunately she has those receptors in her brain so her brain starts actually you know uh, sort of essentially eating up the receptors or sort of uh, it sort of digests the receptors and it actually functions essentially like being on PCP um, the disease that she had essentially it was almost as if she was on a, a chronic drip of, of PCP uh, and eventually she actually got treatment where they gave her a medication that got rid of her antibodies uh, they took out the tumor from her ovaries uh, and, and she did very well and she uh, you know returned to health
0: but the proteins that are that inhabit every cell of our bodies are more than simply strings of oxygen hydrogen nitrogen and carbon Um Aren't they also the building blocks of our personalities and relationships?
1: Yeah, so so we often think of you know DNA as being like the most important molecule in the body. And that's the one we've all heard of the most in some ways. But the reality is DNA is, for the most part, it's sort of an instruction booklet. Yeah, and it's actually mm-hmm. proteins that do most of the work of staying alive. And proteins are this incredibly diverse group of molecules. And they really function because they have these particular structures. And it's the structure that gives them their, their unique functions. Uh, and when you destroy the structure of a protein, it turns out it can take on a different function. It can stop functioning completely. Um, so, so you're exactly right. It's more than just a you know a sort of random group of molecules. These are some of the most critical molecules uh, in our inner bodies.
0: So how do we assess whether a dangerous molecule may be in? accumulating in a patient's brain.
1: So most of those diseases, um, we often diagnose actually with lumbar punctures. Um, some of them you can diagnose actually in, uh, in, in, with a blood test. Uh, but they're not things that we sort of routinely check in people who are healthy. Uh, these are things that we check in people who present with particular types of symptoms. So when we have someone who's you know, in their, you know, you know, oftentimes a, a young woman in their 20s or 30s presenting with acute onset uh, or a very quick uh, onset of psychosis, Um, And they often can have seizures or changes in blood pressure. When people have symptoms like that, we test for a particular molecule. If people have another type of, you know, constellation of symptoms, we'll test for another one. So these diseases are rare enough that we don't sort of test everyone uh, generically, um, but we know about them. And so when we see their symptoms and then we do we do test for them and they many of these have cures.
0: We test for them with MRIs as well.
1: So MRIs can also help. Oftentimes we'll actually see um, evidence of inflammation in the brain in particular areas of the brain uh, for, for a lot of these diseases. Um, one of the diseases that I wrote about, uh, the one that's related to Kuru, uh, there's a disease called Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease that has this remarkable appearance on MRI where you see this sort of um, uh, line of brightness around the edge of the brain. And um, that's this very particular experience, uh, very, uh, very particular appearance.
0: Wasn't, the, didn't uh, doctors think in the past that there would be a single cure for dementia, a magical pill or a universal vaccine?
1: Yeah. So the, this idea of a universal treatment for dementia is sort of not 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 something that's really uh, sort of something reasonable anymore. So. You know, we could say, what really is dementia? What's dementia versus Alzheimer's disease? We talked earlier, Alzheimer's disease is actually, you know, a description of what's going on under a microscope. It's and, those plaques and And we'll tangles. go
0: into Alzheimer's in more detail in a little while. Because so, I, I think it's, it's a perfect. major concern of, of so many people. But go ahead, finish your thought.
1: But um, So so dementia really is a description of how someone functions in everyday life. So um, it's a description that describes someone who has difficulty with these sort of complex activities like, uh, you know, grocery shopping, cooking, driving, working. And uh, it turns out that uh, at a molecular level, um. There are lots and lots of different types of dementia. Alzheimer's disease is the most common, uh, but there's other ones like Lewy buddy disease and frontotemporal dementia. And what we think is that each of those are gonna require a particular treatment. And this is what we've done in in cancer treatment is where someone comes in, they show up, you look at their tumor, you say, okay, these are the molecular markers of that tumor. Now I'm gonna tailor their medications for that. And that's the model that we need to go forward and, and figure out in dementia. So someone should come in and we say, OK, they may have these symptoms, but under a microscope, what do I think would happen? What do I think I would see in their brain? And I'm going to choose my medications based on that.
0: So a drug that treats Alzheimer's is unlikely to help patients with frontotemporal dementia or uh, with Lewy body dementia or Huntington's disease.
1: Exactly. So there may be some overlap, um, but ideally we want to get to something that's really molecularly specific.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin, because the next two listeners who sign up to become members of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more can receive a free copy of her book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Uh, to get it, you just uh, have to go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. Uh, and uh, since we only have two books, uh, I suggest that you should do, you do it right away, and we will be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Paid at Large, and, and thank you so much. And we are back with Sarah Manning Peskin, who's Assistant Professor of Clinical Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania, her writing has appeared in the New York Times, a Boston Globe magazine, Philadelphia Inquirer. And now she's written a book called A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. <laughs> Let's talk about Alzheimer's because we as yet don't have a cure for Alzheimer's, despite the fact that uh, an awful lot of research has been done. Um, what's the problem there?
1: Yes, that's a question lots of us are asking. And Alzheimer's disease turns out to be, it's pretty hard to study. And there's a few reasons. Um, One is that until recently, we didn't actually have a way to tell whether people actually had Alzheimer's disease until they passed away. So it was this horrible situation where we would say, you know, I I think you have Alzheimer's disease, but I can't tell you until until you die and I look at your brain. Um, That's now changed recently with these particular types of what's called PET scans. Um, but one problem that we had for a long time is that we would enroll people into studies of Alzheimer's disease, but about 20% of those people never even had Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, it's really hard to figure out if a drug works for something, if you're mm-hmm. testing it on people who don't have the disease. So that's been one problem. Another problem is that it, it progresses slowly in most people. Um, so if you think a disease that, uh, if you think of a disease that kills people in a week, if you have a drug that helps, yeah, you're going to figure out pretty quickly whether people survive longer than a week. And um, but Alzheimer's disease is a very protracted course. You know, the the arc from mild to severe disease is about seven to ten years. So these studies take forever to carry out. And um, and then you know there are other issues of. Wait, you know, how but do isn't you actually, that a reason?
0: Oh, isn't that a reason that scientists have found that people are more scared of dementia than of other top causes of death, such as heart disease and strokes, which are more immediate?
1: Yes, it's a good question. I don't, so there are good studies that show that people are more scared of dementia than they are of strokes and heart attacks and things that actually are more common causes of death. I don't know if those studies went into why people feel that way, but I think your intuition is exactly right. It's that, you know, a stroke, people think of it as a, you know, a a rapid process, a heart attack as a rapid process. People think of dementia, and it's true, it's a a very slow decline in a lot of people, not always. um, But in most people, it's a, you know, a slow decline over many years, and people think of that as being more painful in some ways.
0: Don't you suspect that it's caused by DNA mutants?
1: So most, most types of dementia, actually, we don't think that there's like a particular DNA mutation that's causing them. Uh, but there's this really unique uh, group of people in, in Colombia in particular, Uh, where there's an extraordinarily high number of families who carry these genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's disease. And even though, you know, at a molecular level, that's very rare, um, there are some incredible scientists that are working with those folks and think that that's actually how we're going to find the cure for Alzheimer's disease, that we're not going to find it in sort of the the typical cases of Alzheimer's disease that we see, but actually in these really unusual cases where it's caused by a, a single mutation.
0: But the, the problem is that predicting what molecule is association with a patient's disease uh, is also important in drug discovery, and we as yet are not really sure in the case of Alzheimer's.
1: So, in Alzheimer's disease, you know, we can we have these PET scans. So, you know, someone can come into the clinic, and I can take a picture of their brain, and I can say, you know, I think they have elevated amyloid, this one protein, or they have elevated tau. Um, so, we do have that in, in Alzheimer's disease. In frontotemporal dementia, it tends to be caused by these one, usually one of two proteins. We don't really have a way to measure those very easily. Um, and the Lewy body disease, it's caused by a protein called synuclein, but I can't have someone come in and take a picture of the synuclein in their brain. I, you know, we don't have the tools for that. Um, so it, it's really quite difficult. A lot of these conditions we're still diagnosing based on you know, talking to people about their symptoms, doing some sort of bedside tests like brain games, um, and then doing something like an MRI that looks at the structure of the brain, but there's not really a molecular test that we could do for a lot of these until someone passes away.
0: We also look at blood and spinal fluid.
1: Exactly. So so blood tests are sort of on the, the forefront um, and spinal fluid yeah, but you know, has been around for a while. You can sort of imagine if you take a water bottle and you put it out in the sun, that toxins from the plastic will leach into the water. Um, the same way your brain is actually bathed in a vat of fluid and it circulates around your brain and around your back. Um, and uh, it turns out that we could take a sample of that fluid in what's called the lumbar puncture. And that can allow us to learn about the brain.
0: Although uh, there uh, many Alzheimer’s cases haven’t been linked to any particular gene, uh, isn’t there a highly genetic form of the disease found in the Antioquia region of Colombia, which may be a key to some promising research?
1: Yeah, so there's this researcher named Francisco LaPera, um, who's, uh, he's from the area. And uh, but he started coming across patients uh, that were having early onset Alzheimer's disease, he started meeting them in the 80s, uh, when he was uh, training, and he went on um, Exactly. And he, he went on to study them and he really he really created this research program sort of from the ground up. He would go out on weekends and sort of travel on horseback and uh, he would keep track of them on index cards and would come back. And he started creating this family tree. And then eventually he met another patient with early onset Alzheimer's disease who had a big family history. And he realized that these two patients were part of the same sort of huge family tree. And this eventually became a really giant uh, sort of uh, research cohort. Um, and they're, they're participating in, in research trials. They've been incredibly uh, sort of warm and, and, uh, and interested in, in finding a cure for the, the disease that's really racked their families for centuries.
0: So as it turned out, that first patient's father and grandfather had also showed memory loss symptoms before they were 50, as did many others in the community. Is, is Alzheimer's likely to be... More endemic in certain communities because the locals called it la bobera de, fa- de la familia, meaning the idiocy of the family. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so in that community, it was extraordinarily common, and this is actually a sort of, it's a story that's common uh, to a lot of, uh, to the discovery of a lot of these diseases. There's actually, there's a group in Venezuela uh, where it, Huntington's disease is extraordinarily common, and the, the genetic uh, cause of Huntington's disease was discovered in part based on research that was done in this group in Venezuela, Um, So we've been extraordinarily sort of lucky to stumble on these uh, groups of families that have had these horrible diseases, uh, but have actually held the key to to research.
0: So it goes back many generations. La Perra traced the condition back to a couple of uh, Europeans who were born in Medellin in the 1700s, uh, and they represented the likely ancestors of tens of thousands of people.
1: Exactly. So they, so Lopera, and he, this was along with one of his um, his colleagues, Lucia Madrigal. They actually went uh, went through old records and were able to trace this disease back uh, for for many generations. And they could figure out, okay, it started in this you know small group of people, and now it's affecting thousands and thousands of people.
0: Well, I, I would think that Alzheimer's is the the most feared condition of people of a certain age. But should we stop worrying about forgetting the names of acquaintances or where we left our keys? In most cases, aren't they just simply signs of normal cognitive aging? Uh, I was told that uh, everything you've ever learned is in your brain. So when you're 25, it's a lot easier to retrieve a smaller amount than it is when you're 80 years old.
1: So that that idea is sort of perpetuated. I've never actually seen a study that confirms it. Yeah, but the idea is so commonly sort of thought of. One thing that we often tell folks is, it's important to keep in mind that there is a decline in normal aging. So if you think about cognition in sort of two groups of, uh, of tools or two groups of skills, so there's something called uh, crystallized intelligence, that's sort of uh, well-rehearsed facts, like um, why do we have a parole system? Uh, you know, what's the definition of something? Um, and it turns out most of those types of skills get better and better until your sixties or so, and then they start to decline. So if you're in your seventies, those skills are declining the only exception actually is vocabulary uh, which seems to just sort of get better and better or stabilize and but other than that those types of memories for a long rehearsed facts starts to get worse in your 60s in a normal person
0: on the other hand i'll often find myself forgetting some a pretty basic word or a a name that i'm very familiar with and then suddenly it'll just pop into my brain
1: Yes, exactly. So that phenomenon, you're, what you're talking about is what's called fluid intelligence. And mm-hmm. that's sort of um, responding to your environment on the fly. So something like, uh, exactly, p- remembering a name that, uh, you know, someone who you haven't seen in
0: a little while, yeah.
1: or I um, go through
0: the alphabet.
1: And that's a great strategy, right? <laughs> exactly. So there are these tools, these tricks that people use that are great. Um, or, you know, you have some association with the person. Uh, but, but, uh, but those types of tools are, are, are those types of, of skills is called fluid intelligence. And uh, that's the same as, you know, if you're, you're driving and you hit a, a roadblock and you have to navigate around without GPS. Um, so it's reacting to, some, reacting to some new information in your environment. And uh, it turns out those skills actually start getting worse in your 20s and then just complete, continue getting worse basically your whole life. So if you're in your, you know, in your 70s, cognition is, you know, your cognition is getting worse, even if you're normal over time, it's getting worse. And a lot of people, I think, don't, don't realize that.
0: But it does cause panic, I have to tell you. It
1: totally, exactly. And you can sort of think of, you know, when you're 20 and you forget something, you may say, you know, oh, I, I drank too much last night or I was up too late. When you're 70 and you forget something, it's so much oh. more salient and people get on this cycle of, you know, oh, this must be evidence of impending doom. I must be, you know, I'm destined to have dementia. And that, that cycle is just so common Statistically, if you take the average 65-year-old, there's a 75% chance that they'll never develop dementia.
0: Don't you argue that uh, we're on the brink of a revolution in confronting the diseases that we've been discussing because scientists have a better handle on how molecules work in the brain?
1: Exactly. So uh, this idea of sort of personalized medicine in the field of dementia is really exploding um, this idea that someone shows up, you know, th- this is the, the ideal we want to get to would be if someone shows up, they report their symptoms, we have some sort of technique to look at their brain while they're still alive, figure out which molecules are causing the problem, and then we pull a medication off the shelf that targets that molecule. That's, the, that's where we want to get to. Um, and that model has been very successful in, in cancer. We just, we haven't been able to get there yet in, uh, in cognitive neurology, but that's where we're headed.
0: Uh, I'm always worried about uh, the cost of of a drug if it does come along and is a miracle drug. I mean, insulin, which was sold, the patent initially was sold for a dollar, is now an incredibly expensive drug in this country.
1: So you're exactly right that the finance of it are just so, so complicated. And this came up with this, the Biogen drug that was under very controversial circumstances uh, was this is a drug that targets amyloid and it's a targets uh, that that protein that we know accumulates in people who have Alzheimer's disease. The data was uh, sort of um, many, many people were not convinced by the data. Even the, the uh, one of the uh, the panels that was uh, was got brought together, decided that they didn't think the drug should be approved, it ends up getting approved, and then there was, uh, was you know, terrible outrage. And uh, one of the biggest issues actually was that medication initially cost more than $50,000 a year. And you can think of the number of people who have Alzheimer's disease mm. that financially it would sort of, it would bankrupt us.
0: My guest is Sarah Manning-Peskin, Assistant Professor of Clinical Neurology, University of Pennsylvania. Her book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain, is uh, published by, uh, by Norton. Uh, and this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. The show is called Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, you tell the stories of some of the scientists who have contributed to the current molecular understanding of such conditions as memory loss and sudden personality shifts going all the way back to uh, people in the 19th century. So, this is something that has been uh, a concern of science for a long time?
1: Exactly. So, molecular science has been around for a while. Uh, Even if we just think about, uh, you know, how did we discover DNA? So, it it turns out it was a, and this is one of the stories you tell in the book, uh, there was this Swiss doctor who uh, trained in medicine, uh, but he was hard of hearing, and he decided he really couldn't hear his patients. So, he decides to Go and, and uh, become a laboratory scientist. Friedrich and he works Meischer, near a, is that his name? exactly, exactly. So he works near this hospital and he starts collecting bandages from the hospital and then he scrapes the pus from the bandages yeah, into beakers and he starts studying pus. That's what he's most interested in. And he finds out that there's this sort of stringy substance in the in the pus. And he characterizes it a little bit. He publishes this really dry 20-page paper. And a lot of people think that it's a contaminant. They think that he some people think actually he uh, you know, purposely uh, contaminated his experiments or that he's lying. And um, he gets sort of a lot of flack from it, doesn't get much credit. Um, and uh, and eventually, you know, when he passes away. Nobody really knows that he actually discovered something critical. Mm-hmm. So people do go on to look at the molecule that he discovered and they characterize it chemically uh, and they give it the name DNA to describe its chemical structure. But nobody really thinks that it's important at the time people thought that proteins were really the most important uh, molecules in the body that that those were the molecules that really made you know made parents look like their children and allowed hereditary traits to be passed on um, and it wasn't actually until the mid-1940s, there was this Canadian bacteriologist named Oswald Avery, uh, who actually figured out that DNA is the molecule of hereditary, of a heredity. Um, but, uh, but there was about a century in between when, uh, or a little less than a century, when nobody really realized that DNA was such an important molecule.
0: And then, so this research and then RNA had to be discovered as well.
1: Right. So this has been a it's been a long this has been a long road and a long process. And, you know, there are some times when we think of research happening so fast, happening so fast, like with COVID, you know, very soon after the after the uh, the pandemic broke out, we knew the exact sequence of, uh, of the virus. And now we're sequencing viruses all the time. And so there was just this incredibly rapid pace of, of scientific progress. But in other stories, things just sort of eke along extraordinarily slowly.
0: You want to talk about some of the other doctor scientists you write about Nancy Wexler, for example?
1: Exactly. So she was the one that we sort of talked about with Huntington's disease, and she's the one who uh, helped to locate the uh, the gene that causes Huntington's disease. Um, that one was of 1979. my other
0: seventy nine.
1: Exactly. Actually, I think it was in the uh, in the early 80s when they actually published the uh, published the first paper locating it to, to chromosome four, and then in the early 90s, locating the particular gene. Um, there's a, a, a particularly sort of a, a memorable scientist named uh, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, and he was a, a Spanish scientist in the uh, in the 1800s, and he lived at this time when. People thought that the nervous system was made of one giant cell, which sort of made sense if you want your brain to control your toe. Wouldn't it be easiest if they were connected by something directly? Um, And uh, Santiago does these experiments where he actually figures out that's not the case, that actually the nervous system is made of lots and lots of different cells. And uh, he makes the discovery in his laboratory, but he suddenly is then—you know—he says, "How am I going to get this information out there? How am I going to tell anyone that I've discovered it?" So he ends up spending all of his own money to write up his his data. And he you know, prints copies of it. Uh, there's great stories of how you know, he spent so much money that he can't afford a nanny. So his wife is stuck you know, doing all the childcare for all of their children. There's another account that someone brought up actually at a book reading that apparently he, he couldn't afford curtains. Um, so he really goes all out for this. And he sends these uh, packets of data across Europe. And he sort of waits for what he thinks is going to be a great response. And nobody seems to care. He doesn't hear anything. And then it occurs to him that he's published this, you know, he sent out these printouts in Spanish and maybe the people he sent it to don't understand Spanish. So he decides to go a step further and he actually packs away his slides and his microscopes in a suitcase and it goes all the way to Germany and sets up a booth at this conference. Um, and literally has people in person come up and look at his slide so they can see that the nervous system has multiple cells. Um, and eventually the people who were sort of the, the the leaders in the field who were at the conference end up stopping by the booth and end up getting convinced by his research. And that's how we figured out that the nervous system is made of you know of lots of different nerves, that it's not just one giant blob, essentially. Um, and uh, it's just because this guy, Santiago Cajal took matters in his own hands and decided to you know schlep his his slides all the way across Europe uh, to show other people.
0: You, you've talked about some of the ways uh, these, uh, these things that are important to our lives suddenly get changed. Um, you mentioned, uh, well, there's a genetic component. Sometimes it's things like alcohol that cause it. What else?
1: so the the, um, the things that I talk about in the book, some of them are genetic or DNA, some of them are proteins. Some of them are sort of uh, toxins or things that we bring into our body, and some of the things are, you know, something like vitamins where it should be in our body, but it's not there. So well, it's sort of for of example, absent.
0: If, if I come down with an illness, I, uh, could that, even though that illness has nothing to do with what we're talking about, can that have an effect on the uh, the molecules that we're discussing?
1: So we know there are, you know, there are cognitive side effects of, you know, of, of many, many illnesses. So if you have a disease of the kidneys, that can cause, that can cause, you know, difficulty with thinking. Um, so, um, so that's certainly true that, you know, even if you have a, a problem uh, in one part of the body, uh, it can have an effect on the brain. Yeah, that, that's been documented many times over. So you're exactly right.
0: You have, uh, in a way, relax me a bit because, you know, (laughs) um, as I get older, my big fear, of course, is that I'm going to come down with one of these illnesses. And it seems to me that there's a possibility that I will, and there's a possibility that I won't, right?
1: Exactly. And, you know, statistically, if you, you know, for the average, again, for the average 65-year-old, there's a, you know, a 75% chance they'll never have dementia. It turns out, statistically, people are more worried about dementia and more people worry about it than actually get it. And if you have had a family member with it, the, the imbalance is even higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, you say, well, how do, how do I know if it's happening? You know, every time, you know, you're 70 and every time you forget something, you think that that means that, you know, you're destined to have dementia. And an easy way to think about it, you know, aside from, from talking to your doctor or going to a neurologist, um, a good rule of thumb is to actually just Choose a friend or a family member that you trust that you'll, you'll you'll listen to and just say, you know, I'm feeling worried about my memory and thinking, um, can you keep an eye on it and, and check in with me every six months or so? And if you think I'm different from our peers, let me know. And the key is that, is that am I different from our peers? Um, so, you know, if you're 80, you're, your memory is not going to be the same as someone who's 20. The question is, how do you compare with, you know, your other friends who are 80? Um, And uh, that's sort of a good proxy. We're we're pretty bad at assessing our own cognition, even in people who are normal. Mm -hmm. So having someone else on the job is better.
0: Somebody who says, "You know, Leonard, you're forgetting a lot of things these days."
1: (laughs) (laughs) Somebody who says it nicely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Sarah Manning Peskin, assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Peskin's book, A Molecule Away from Badness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain, is published by W.W. W. Norton. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you
1: so much for having me.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Kaziah Glow, the executive producer of London located at Lodge, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If You're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews. You can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign out today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give2wbai.org. To that's give and then the number two. WBAI.org. I hope you'll do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't get anywhere else, or at least in the, the depth that we try to prevent it in. And as I mentioned earlier, now I don't know if we, they, they are already gone, but the first two listeners who make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopit at Large right now, can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain by Dr. Sarah Manning-Peskin. So uh, why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online to give to wbaiorg You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during Women's History Month this month— We're offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, I hope you can call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, Again, the number, 212-209-2950 play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. I hope you can join us again on Monday when my guest will be Dr. John Guest, discussing his ideas on how the left can embrace nationalism while maintaining its values. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.